this morning, Acts chapter 16. And as you are getting to your seats, let's do the smart thing and let's pray. Heavenly Father, through your spirit you wrote this and I just pray through your spirit you'd help us to understand it. Not just to hear it, but to apply it, to learn from it, to grow. And that we'd walk out of here stronger in you and always in all things. Be those lights and witnesses you've called us to be in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 16, we're starting Paul's second missionary journey this week. Glad you can make it with us. I know 4th of July weekend, a lot of people out traveling, a lot of things going on. Glad you can make it here. So as we continue on in our study in the book of Acts, Paul's second missionary journey. Last week we finished up Acts 15, and we talked about the two main issues in Acts 15. There was theological disagreements, how did the early church handle that? And then there was a personal disagreement. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get a copy of that. We had some great passages that we went through about dealing with just communication and personal issues, etc., and on how trying to be unified and not letting the divisions and arguments get in there. So what happens here now in Acts 16 is Paul and Silas get ready to take off and go on their second missionary journey. And we're going to go ahead now and go and put that up there. We've just got a little map here that just kind of shows the second missionary journey. And as that's up there, we will read through these passages here. And you can kind of look at the towns and the names as we go through this. Acts 16, verse 1, it says, Then he came to Derba and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in the number daily. And as you can see on the map there, Jerusalem's down here at the bottom, going up to Antioch, Derba, Iconium, Lystra. You can kind of get a feel here for what Paul is going to be doing on his second missionary journey. That's going to take us through the next couple chapters as well. So, with that being said, we're introduced to one of my favorite guys in the Bible, a guy by the name of Timothy. Now, the reason I like Timothy so much is Timothy is one of those guys that you actually get a pretty full story on them in their life. A lot of the times when a character is mentioned in the Bible, say a Silas or something along that type of line, we get some details here and there, but we don't get a full detail on Timothy on, on their life. With Timothy, we know a lot about him. We obviously know from verse 1, his mom was Jewish, his dad was Greek. We also know from studying other passages about Timothy that his grandma's name was Eunice. We know that he was raised in this godly manner and that from early childhood they ingrained in him to the scriptures. And you see the fruit that comes out about that. I find that so encouraging. With me having five little boys at home, it really encourages me to say, okay, how can we learn from this? Well, let's surround them with believers. Let's, let's train them in the scriptures from an early age. And just as Timothy has this wonderful pattern, it's something we can learn about as well. His dad being Greek. Now, that's kind of a term in the Bible. Obviously, that just means they were not Jewish. Generally, it kind of refers to a non-believer. We don't know for sure about his dad. We do know that his mom was saved. We do know that his grandma was saved. And we do know that he was obviously very well used of the Lord. And Timothy kind of becomes Paul's right-hand man, if you will, and really plays a key role here throughout the rest of the New Testament, especially the epistles. So we'll refer back to Timothy a lot. Always liked him. CBC, for you guys that have gone through CBC, you know one of the first verses you learn is 1 Timothy 4.12. Do not let anybody look down on you because you are young. And then we always use that verse in CBC to say, here was a young man in Timothy that was used by the Lord 
and that was used mightily by the Lord. And what a great example that is. So, parents, if you've got kids at home, hey, raise them up to be those Timothys. Ingrain the scriptures into them, surround them with believers, encourage them in their walk in relationship with the Lord. And what a blessing that was. Verse 2 sums it up nicely. He was well spoken of by the brethren. What a great description there. Now, before we get into Timothy a little bit more, it's interesting that Paul is going back here about a year or two later on his second missionary journey, and there's fruit. That's how the system works. That you go plant seeds, and then those seeds eventually sprout and hopefully produce fruit for the Lord. For this one with Timothy, when was Timothy saved? When was grandma or mom saved? We don't know for sure. But it sure is interesting that when Paul is going back and visiting some of these cities, he's starting to see the fruit of what was planted years ago. That's the thing. Do you realize sometimes it takes a couple years to get the fruit? If you want fruit, you need to plant, you need to water, and then you need to wait. We really struggle with that as Christians. We want the fruit immediately. Things don't work immediately. It does not work that way in any way whatsoever. There's a great example here, and you don't need to turn. It's out of the book of James. He uses the example of a farmer. And just listen to this passage here out of James chapter 5. It says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And three, in two verses, they use the word patient three times. God's trying to get a point across. Be patient. It takes a while for this fruit to produce. I think as Christians, we really struggle with spiritual patience. We go witness to somebody and we immediately expect them to hit their knees, accept Jesus Christ, and move on with their life. There's not too many little chia pet Christians. It takes a while a lot of times here. And we rush it. We rush it. They're, they're not growing quick enough. They're not producing fruit quick enough. And we try to force it. And we think we're doing a good job by forcing it. We live in a farming community. If you went out and saw a farmer planting corn in the middle of January, you would not say, wow, that guy's diligent. Look at him getting ahead. He'd walk away saying the guy's an idiot. Right now, July, if somebody would come up and say, you know what, October and November are really busy for me. I'm just going to go ahead and take care of the corn and beans now. That makes no sense. But spiritually speaking, we do similar things. We force people. We push things. We're really throughout the Bible. God says, you want fruit, plant Water, wait. Patience. James 5, verses 7 and 8, the word patience is used three times to remind us fruit takes time. Great example of this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we're first introduced to him in John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus at night. So they have this great conversation about what do I have to do to be saved? You've got to be born again. So Jesus has this great conversation with them. We end John 3 with what? Nothing. We'll jump ahead to John 7. John 7, now we see Nicodemus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And they're talking about Jesus. And we see Nicodemus take a, take a little stand for Christ. Just a little stand, nothing big. And he gets picked on for that in John 7. Finally, at the end in John 19, when Jesus has died, we see Nicodemus boldly come forward and ask for the body of Christ. That took about three years for that fruit to come. Three years. Some of you have been praying for kids or grandkids, friends, and family three years. Maybe it's going to be four. Maybe it's going to be a decade or two decades. And here's the toughest one. Maybe you won't see the fruit in your lifetime. Do you still trust that the Lord's moving and working? I remember one time there was a mom out here desperately, desperately wanted their son 
come to know Christ. And I remember saying, you know what? The only thing you can do is plant water and wait. And I remember her exasperated saying, what am I supposed to do while I'm waiting? You pray. You fast. You can't force it. Just in our two little analogies there, you can't plant in January and you can't harvest corn in July. It doesn't work. You allow it to grow and mature and you trust that the Spirit is moving and working even when we don't see it. And you also trust that God has different puzzle pieces coming together that you may not even know. I tell you, one of my big prayers is this. When, when a parent comes up or a grandparent or somebody comes up and says, I really want my kid, my grandkid to know the Lord. I usually start praying like this. You know, first off, for them to obviously know Christ, their heart to be open. But bring in co-workers that are saved. Bring in other students. Surround this person with people. I don't care if it's the cashier at Walmart. Let them see other believers. That, that way it's not all on our shoulders. So often we throw the burden on us. We are a body of Christ ministering to the world. Your role may be planting, your role may be watering, your role may be praying. I don't know. But so often we want everything. It doesn't work that way. Paul wrote about this. He says right here, he goes, I planted, this is out of 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but it's God who made it grow. So then neither is he who plants anything, nor is he who waters, but God who gives the increase. You see, it's not about us. My role may be just planting a seed, and then that may be the only contact I have with that person. My role may be taking a seed that was already planted by somebody else years ago and just watering it for a season. Or I may get the joy of actually picking the fruit off the tree, seeing that person come to know Christ. It's not a competition. We have made it a competition. It's whoever leads them to the Lord wins. No, we all win when anybody gets led to the Lord. So, your role may be planting, your role may be watering, your role may be picking the fruit. We all want to pick the fruit, but don't change your role. Plant, water, wait. You see that with Timothy. You see that with Nicodemus. You see what God's doing. And you see what happened with Timothy. The blessing of him. Listen to how Paul described this. Timothy goes, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. That's out of 1 Corinthians 4. The fruit that came out of Timothy's life was amazing. Amazing. So just remember... Plant, water, wait, allow the Lord to move, trust that the Lord is moving. Nicodemus, three years. Timothy, a couple years. But the Lord is moving and working. And sometimes he's doing stuff behind the scenes you don't even know. I'll share this with you real quick. I've used this example before. There was a gal that used to come out here to church. And um, it was a struggle. Spiritually, it was a struggle. And through different reasons, moved away. And when she left away, it was not really moving away in a strong walk with the Lord. In fact, I don't even know if there was much of a walk with the Lord. Anyways, years later, I got a letter from her, found out it all clicked. Walking with the Lord, amazing, wanted teaching CDs. And it really just blessed me. And it said, wow, she moved away. Years passed. To be honest, I just kind of gave up. But that seed was still growing, and I didn't even realize it. And all of a sudden, there's fruit. You're like, wow, Lord. That's what God does. It's not about us. It's about Him. So back to Timothy here. Once again, a great description. Verse 2, well spoken of by the brethren. But then verse 3. How interesting is verse 3? Paul basically says you've got to be circumcised to go on this missionary trip. We just studied in Acts 15. The big point was you didn't have to be circumcised. So is Paul jumping back and forth here? Basically, Acts 15, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Oh, but hey, Timothy, Acts 16, you've got to be circumcised. 
You know, it even gets more interesting. If I remember correctly, I think in a couple of chapters, when Titus wants to go along, Paul says, you don't have to be. Now, if I was in Timothy's spot, my first question would be, why did I have to? But Titus didn't have to. What happens here in Acts 16, verse 3, why? The region they were going to was full of Jews. Everybody knew that Timothy's dad was Greek, obviously not Jewish. So for Timothy to be able to effectively present the gospel, he was going to have to go through that process of being circumcised. And let me stress this, not to be saved, but to have a better opportunity to witness to other people. That was the whole point. It had nothing to do with his salvation. It had to do with him being able to share the gospel with other people. A few years ago, there was a family friend that passed away that was Jewish. And we went to the funeral service for her. And as I walked in for the funeral service, they handed me the hat. And I had to wear the hat. Now, why? Because from the Jewish perspective, to have your head uncovered before God is a shame because God is above you. So you wear the hat to cover your head. Now, I could have sat right there in front of everybody and made this bold proclamation that, sorry, as a born-again believer of Jesus Christ, Christ has fulfilled the law for me and I'm no longer under this under obligation. I could have. And what good would have come out of that? Nothing. Put the hat on. Go talk to the family. Tell them you're praying for them. Minister to them. Show the love of Christ. But what happens is sometimes as believers, we're not willing to budge, are we? It's fascinating. Timothy was willing to get circumcised to go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's things you and I will not do that we will not bend on to spread the gospel. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. I'm not talking on issues of theology, and I'm not talking on issues of morality, right and wrong. I'm saying on areas that we could be more open to say, this gives me an opportunity to spread the gospel. I knew a guy one time that was asked to go speak at a church, and uh, he declined. And why did he decline? I asked him, he goes, well, they wanted me to wear a suit and tie. It's like, come on, man, throw the tie on. Wear it for an hour and a half, throw the tie on, and go present Jesus Christ. I don't have to. God doesn't care how I look. No, God doesn't care how you look. But to go present the gospel, throw the tie on. Wear the hat. Paul wrote about this in Corinthians. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. Now note when he says, without law, he stresses in verse 21, this is 1 Corinthians 9, not being without law towards God. Not basically saying, hey, I can go do whatever I want. The best way to witness to a drunk is to be drunk with him. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I become all things to all people. Just honestly ask yourself, are you willing sometimes to make those sacrifices to say, if this gives me a better, clearer opportunity to spread the gospel, then I will do it. Every now and then, Dawn and I will have some conversations, and I'll go through my week with her, and I'll say, this is what I'm doing. She'll look at me and say, why are you doing that? And I'll say, because it's an opportunity. I'll meet that guy where he's at, and I'll meet that guy in, in, in that life, and maybe there's an opportunity to really show the love of the Lord to him. You know, let's meet him with that. Let's become all things to all people. Timothy is probably the, well, Jesus is the greatest example of becoming all things to all people. God came down in the form of man. But on this earth, Timothy, willing to go get circumcised to say, I'll go spread the gospel to the Jews. 
That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Probably makes what we go through look very, very light. But he's willing to do it. What were they going to do? Verse 4. As they go on this missionary journey, they were going to deliver the decrees to keep. Boy, how boring is that? They're just going to go around and tell everybody how to live their life according to the Bible. I mean, seriously. I mean, anybody knows, according to the 21st century, if you really want to get out there and minister, you've got to make it big. I mean, you've got to make it impressive. And I think this is where the 21st century church gets it wrong. Is the best way to minister is to make this show, this pep rally. And that's how you do it. Actually, if you just look in the Bible, the best way to minister to people is get them together and just teach them the instructions of the Lord. How simple is that? But yet, we have gotten to this idea now where it has to be big, amazing, impressive. Don't get me wrong. There are times and opportunities where we do things like... VBS is coming up in a week. And there's been times in the past for Vacation Bible School, we transformed the church into something. I remember one year we walked through the belly of a fish to get into the sanctuary. It does give that visual to the kids to remind them. But a lot of the times on a Sunday morning, we just need to get together and listen to the instruction of the Lord. And then encourage you to go out and then to live it. When I talk to somebody from the community and they talk about possibly coming out to church, the first question they ask is this, is what time church starts? 10 o'clock or 8.30, you know, depending on what service you come to. I usually say 10 o'clock on Sundays. And they say, what time are you done? I usually say about, 11, about 11.30. Hour and a half? That's what they say, hour and a half. What do you do for an hour and a half? I had one guy tell me one time, he goes, I can go to the church down the road and be done in a half hour. What do you guys do for an hour and a half? I said, well, you know, we usually have some worship at the beginning, you know, let's say 20, 25 minutes or something. I said, then we have announcements. Sometimes announcements go on for a while. A break of fellowship and then the teaching. Well, how long do you teach for? I said, sometimes we teach for 40, 45 minutes and their jaw just drops. What do you say for 40, 45 minutes? We're, we're instructing you in the righteousness of the Lord. We're giving you the decrees to keep. See, we, we get church backwards. And this is this theme we've been talking about for the last four or five months out here in our study in Acts. The concept of church in the 21st century is broken. The, the purpose of church, if you look in the book of Acts, is let's get together, give you an opportunity to worship, an opportunity to serve, an opportunity of fellowship, some encouragement. But let's instruct you to send you out. The whole purpose we're here is to train you to be the best believer you can in the Lord. If you've come here today and you are saved, then I want to instruct you on how to be a stronger Christian, a better husband, a better wife, a better friend. And then you go out there for these next six, seven days and go make disciples. If you come in here today and you're not saved, we'll make sure that we'll present the truth of Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for your sins. That's what we're supposed to do. So the goal of church is to instruct you, verse 4, to give you the decrees to keep, and then go out and do something with it. That's the whole goal. We've been going back to this passage in Matthew so often where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples. And we ask questions every week. Are you making disciples? Are you strengthening people in their walk? Are you being a light and a witness? Because that's what we're called to do. And what's the result of this? Verse 5. The churches were strengthened in the faith, increased in number daily. Strengthened. That word, some of your translations may say established. Make solid. To make firm. And this is kind of what I want to kind of close with. Because as we look at this passage, we are introduced to Timothy. We see Timothy's willingness to see the gospel spread, and we can learn from that. We see that they went from city to city preaching the truth of God's word, and we see them strengthening the church. And how were they strengthened? Strengthened in the faith. In the faith. So it made me start thinking here at the end, 
Well, how solid is, is your faith? How solid is your walk? Turn with me, if you will, to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. I know a lot of people that claim to have a faith, to have a relationship with the Lord. It's not solid. A lot of people claim to have a Christian marriage. It's not solid. A lot of people claim to have Christian families. They're not a solid. You know, this ongoing theme here is how do you make solid? How do you establish this of what the Lord has called us to do? Back in our passage in James 5 that we read earlier, it says we're supposed to establish ourselves to the coming of the Lord. That means constantly making ourselves stronger until Christ returns. So as we patiently wait to spread the gospel, and as we patiently wait for Christ to return, we don't just sit here and twiddle our thumbs. We keep strengthening our own walk in relationship with Christ. So, First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one tells us about this. Let's pick it up here in verse uh, eight. It says right here: If these things are yours and around you, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the goal. Verse eight is to not be barren nor unfruitful; is to produce fruit for the Lord. That's the goal. How do we do this? Verse nine. He who lacks these things is short-sighted, even of blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. If we lose the focus of producing fruit for the Lord, verse 9, we're short-sighted and blind. Short-sighted meaning we get caught up in these temporary things. That we're not even thinking about the things of the Lord because work is busy. i got this project at home. It's a busy season with the kids. We become short-sighted. Instead of looking at eternity, we look at this world. And we allow the day-to-day routine of this world to make us short-sighted or even completely blind. That we no longer think of eternity in any way whatsoever. It's not about fruit. And what happens here is I stand up here and preach. It's about making souls. It's about disciples. It's about eternity. We're sitting there saying, yeah, i got a busy week this week. Boy, i got a lot going on. Short-sighted. Blind. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the question comes up, this is what I want. Verse 8, to be fruitful. Verse 9, not to be blind. Verse 10, to be diligent. So what do I need to do? Verse 8, I need to do these things. Verse 9, I need to do these things. And according to verse 10, I need to do these things. Let's find out what these these things are. Verses 5 through 7. 5 through 7. They give us 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Nine things. Verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. Here's your test. How solid is your faith? Nine things to ask yourself. Nine things. So you want to know how solid your faith is? First one, verse 5. Are you diligent? I guess the opposite of that would be, are you lazy? Are you spiritually diligent or are you spiritually lazy? Now, none of these questions are here to make you squirm or to make you feel uncomfortable. These are the things, according to verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, we're supposed to ask ourselves. Am I diligently serving the Lord or, to be kind of honest, am I kind of lazy about it? Next one, faith. How's your faith? How's your trusting in the Lord? I mean, do you trust this system that God has? I mean, do you wake up in the day and say, okay, Lord, I'm here to serve you. What it's all about is just trusting you're going to see me through life and through the day, or does your faith falter? Are you the type of person that anytime something in life happens, you just fall flat? Do people see an active faith in you? Boy, that faith is impressive when you see it. 
When you see somebody who just trusts the Lord in life, what an encouragement that is. The Bible uses this term childlike faith. And ah, boy, we've lost that. Our third son, Kenan, boy, he's got a childlike faith. Little story here. We went and saw fireworks on Thursday. And we're watching the fireworks and everything. Got to be time to leave. It's about 11 o'clock at night. Obviously, it's dark out. And we're getting ready to load up. And Layden, our fourth, can't find his bag. His bag has all the most... Our, our boys in this stage right now, they're all going to grow up to be hoarders. Is they're in this stage right now where they take a bag and they fill it with all their most precious possessions. So Layden has his bag filled with his most precious possessions. We're loading him up. Where's your bag? I don't know. Okay, we're in this area. It's dark. You can't, I mean, you can't find anything. So what do you do? So what we do at the urban house is we have something where we call a huddle. I say huddle, and all the boys come to me. So we huddle up, and we huddle up. we got to find this bag. I can't find the bag. I can't find anything. Kenan is my prayer. He, he has so much faith, and if you ever, if we can't find anything at home, Kenan's first response is, Dad, should we pray? Should we pray? So Kenan, we get the huddle up. Kenan, pray that we can find the bag. Kenan prays to find the bag. As soon as he's done praying, I say, Elias, go look. Because Elias is the looker. He can find anything. So the system is, I huddle, Kenan prays, Elias looks, 30 seconds later, the bag is found. That's just the way the system works. If you've ever lost anything at your house, call me. I'll put Kenan on the phone. He will pray with you. And then I'll send Elias over and he will look and you will find it. But this idea of faith, Kenan, that's just in his world. I mean, I'll walk through the house and be like, honey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Ken's like, did you pray? Faith. He's just got faith. But it's amazing how when we get older, I mean, when's the last time you thought about that? Oh, I lost my car keys. I should probably pray first. Faith. Next one. Virtue. Some of your translations may say moral excellence or goodness. Are you a moral person? Are you doing things that are morally right? Are you watching things that are good? Are you watching things that are immoral or bad? Do the words coming out of your mouth moral and good? Or are they destructive? I mean, this is just, am I living a moral, godly life? The next one, knowledge. Verse 5. problem with knowledge is it's boring, right? See, I disagree. I love knowledge. I love learning and studying and getting into the Word. I think as Christians, we have really failed that we can't present the truth of the gospel. And when people come up and ask us, why do you believe what you believe? We can't eloquently describe it. You know, Peter says we're supposed to be able to give a defense of the gospel. Do you have the basic knowledge of the Bible to be able to say, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it? Knowledge. Next one, self-control. That's pretty self-explanatory. Part of solidifying my faith in the Lord is having self-control. I watch what I say. I watch my temper. I watch my word. I am under control through the Spirit. Not through my flesh. Not through my emotions. But through the self-control of the Spirit. The next one, perseverance. Some of your translations say patience. I'd like to skip that one. Patience. Boy, patience has popped up a lot today. James 5, it's used three times. Here it comes up again. The only way to learn patience is to be in situations that test your patience. I, I have come to the conclusion, and you may disagree with me, God will always, always allow one person in my life that completely annoys me to teach me patience and unconditional love. I, I truly do mean that. God will always allow situations in my life to teach me patience. He truly will. Patience is a virtue that needs to be learned because it's in patience we realize the big picture. 
Think of the things that you got impatient with this week and upset about. And the whole scheme of eternity, how many of those mattered? They don't. Next one, godliness. Godliness is just being Christ-like. When people look at your life, do they see a picture of the Lord? Are your actions a picture of You know, we can be moral. We can have self-control. Godliness is a whole other level. We're walking in the nature of Jesus. So when people see us, we're walking in that picture of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Next one, brotherly kindness. This one's important to us. Like I said, with five boys at home, we talk about brotherly kindness a lot. This one gets overlooked. Brotherly kindness is the simplicity of please, thank you, I'm sorry. Amazing how that one gets overlooked, doesn't it? Men, we see a stranger, we'll leave the door open for him. Our wife, well, she needs to pick up the pace. Brotherly kindness. You know, we bump into a stranger in Walmart. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Watch out. I bump into my kid with the cart. Elias, watch it, buddy. I tell, I tell the boys when we go shopping at Walmart, I say the rule is this. The cart does not watch out for you. You watch out for the cart. That's my rule. Now, can you imagine going up with a bunch of strangers in Walmart? Hey, everybody, you watch out for my cart. I don't watch out for you. Brotherly kindness goes out the window. And especially in the, in the aspect of life and marriage, when you're around somebody, maybe co-workers, friends, family members for many years, all of a sudden this code of kindness is no longer needed. Don and I will be married. It'll be 18 years here in August. And it amazes me sometimes how the, we love each other more than anything. This kindness just sometimes goes out the window. The things that we'll say. We had a situation that happened Thursday. It was the same night as the fireworks night. And this is a true story. I'm not going to exaggerate in any way whatsoever. And Dawn pleaded with me not to say it, so I'm still saying it. We, were, we went to Lowe's. We went to Lowe's on Thursday. And she went in. We were going to get some stones to do some outside landscaping stuff. So she went in to get the stones. And I stayed out in the vehicle with the boys. And she called me up and said, hey, I found the stones I want. Can we come in and get them real quick? It was getting late. It was closing. I said, sure. So let's go in. So she meets us up. We're going into Lowe's. And I said, so what stones did you pick to do the landscaping? Now, Lowe's had their section of stones in the back that you load up. But they had these displays out front. And so the displays of all the flowers and everything. She goes, well, I picked those right there that look like that. I said, okay, well, this is easy. So I start taking the display apart. I'm just, I'm just being stupid. I know that, you know. She looks at me. She goes, don't be an idiot. I don't have time for idiots. That's what she says. <laughs> She says this in front of my children. She says this in front of all the people at Lowe's. So this has been our little catchphrase this whole week is, don't be an idiot. I don't have time for idiots. That, that idea of brotherly kindness goes out the window a lot of times there. Which leads us up to verse 7. Love. Love. Boy, you want to solidify your faith? Love. Isn't it fascinating? First John, God describes himself as love. Jesus said, you'll know you're my disciples by your love. If you'd go up to the non-believing world and say, pick one word to describe Christians, how many of them would say love? If you laid all the religions of the world out in order, you have the Hindus, you have the Muslims, you have the Buddhists, you have Christians, we're all right there. And we said, pick the most loving religion. How many non-believers in the world would say, wow, Christians? But yet that's what God said we're supposed to be known for, is our love. It's a struggle to have love and truth. I'll be honest, it's a struggle to have love and truth. But we're supposed to be called to know our love. Look at these traits and just ask yourself as we go through them one more time. Am I solid in these? Is my marriage solid in these? Is my witness solid in these? How do I solidify my faith? Having diligence, faith, 
virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If you do those nine things, you're going to have a pretty solid walk with the Lord. And that's what he's called us to do. And Peter, to distress this, look at verses 12 through 15, same chapter, 2 Peter 1. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing I shortly must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be very careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Very simply put, those verses, basically Peter saying, I'm dying. And so since I'm dying, these are the things I feel it's important to tell you. Now, if, if Peter's final days on this earth, he feels it's important to tell us to have diligence, faith, virtue, love, knowledge, etc., we should really learn from this. And he, I think he's trying to make a point. Did you catch in verse 12 in my New King James? It says, I want to remind you always. Verse 13 says, I'm reminding of you of this. And verse 15 says, here's my reminder. I think he's trying to get a point across. See, so often when we get together, it's not proclaiming something new. It's proclaiming what we know and say, are you living it? Are you living it? Are you taking these attributes and applying them to your life and blessing your life in the Lord, blessing your marriage, blessing your witness, blessing your family, your kids, your co-workers, your family, whatever it is, your friends? Am I solidifying my walk? Paul, Timothy, going around to these different cities on their second missionary journey, they wanted to solidify to make establish them stronger in their relationship with Christ. That's what we want to do as well, too. Just two reminders and we're done. Can you go to that next slide there real quick? This has been on the uh, front of the bulletin here now for the last couple months. This is how simple it is, guys. Share them Christ, evangelize. See them save, conversion, and then disciple them. That's how simple See, we focus so much on evangelism and conversion. And don't get me wrong, obviously those are important, heaven and hell. But I also want to focus on this discipleship part, instructing you to go deeper in your walk and relationship with the Lord. Why is it that we get saved at conversion and then we just stop right to the right of the cross when really we're supposed to be continually growing, discipling each other, discipling one another, the body helping the body grow? We've said many times out here, the concept of church nowadays is basically there's a select group of people that lead a church and they take care of everything. That's not the way the system works. The way the system works is the body steps up to help the body grow. That we're encouraging one another to grow in their relationship with the Lord. We're all called to disciple and make disciples. And if you remember back in Acts 16, it says the churches were strengthened in the faith. Last slide here. Faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Alan, if you can go to the next one there. This one right here. Idea of faith. We just mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Romans 1.17. We're supposed to live by faith. How do we live by faith? Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. And then Luke 24.32. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened the scriptures? So God says live in faith. You learn faith. You grow in your faith by being in the word. And as you're in the word, your heart burns for more of the Lord. Then as your heart burns for more of the Lord, you go back into the word more to learn about him. And as you're back in the word, your heart burns for more of the Lord again. It's a wonderful system. If your heart's not burning for the Lord, let me ask you this. Are you in the Word? I mean, are you allowing yourself to grow? And if you've been with us, we're doing this Psalm 119 study throughout the week on Facebook and on the church website. If you're not following us, I encourage you to do that. Because Psalm 119 keeps stressing to us. It's not just reading the Word. It's meditating on it. It's contemplating it. It's chewing on it. It's being in it. 
A lot of Christians get up every day and read the Word. Yeah, but are you really contemplating and chewing and meditating on it and learning of it and letting it affect your life? Just simply reading words on a page, that's good. But let's really chew on it here. That's how our faith grows. And that's what you're going to see here continually through the second half of the book of Acts. This idea of taking people, and it's very simple. They're not saved, let's proclaim Jesus to them. They are saved, let's encourage them to go deeper. That's what the church is supposed to be doing, and that's what we want to do as well. Marv, if you want to come forward, for the final song.